Open your copy of God's Word, Exodus 20. We're looking at uh, the last of the Ten Commandments this morning, verse 17, and uh, to the end. And then, Lord willing, after uh, this, we'll return to our series in 1 John. I was into 1 John chapter 2, but I'll, I'll catch back up. I'll start with those of you who want to read ahead, 1 John chapter 2, um, and continue our series after this. This morning, I want us to look at the... The Tenth Commandment, the No Coveting Command. Uh, I don't have to take a survey. I, I suspect every hand would go up if I said, does anybody want something they don't have right now? You know, most of us want something uh, that we don't have. It, it's, it's not hard for me now to get a Christmas list or a birthday list from any of my family, and it's not hard for them to get one from me. I just go on Amazon and I click all these things. Yeah, I'd love these things. Uh, bring them on. You know, we all want things that we don't have. Some of us are discontent because we don't have those things. And the no coveting command starts hitting at our hearts at times. Do we move beyond just wanting something to really coveting something that uh, we should not uh, necessarily want or have? Seven out of ten lives, according to um, uh, American surveys, are unsatisfied. Seven out of ten. Five out of six Americans say they don't have enough money for what they really need. Five out of six. And then um, half of the Christian public, half, Christian survey, half of the Christian public says they never have enough to buy what they really need. That breeds a um, culture of discontent. And it's, it, it's evident in our practice. Uh, this month, I think, the consumer debt exceeds $15 trillion. I don't, I don't know what that money, that, that dollar amount is. I just don't think in trillions. Does anybody? I don't. Um, consumer debt in America exceeds $15 trillion. Dollars, Over 80% of us owe someone something. It's a home mortgage. It's an auto loan. It's a school loan. It's credit card debt. Uh, 80% of us are in debt. Um, and as a result of that, we're all sitting here thinking, well, I really need more, and I don't have enough for what I need. What's the secret? What's the secret of contentment? Perhaps, you know, we could change the world with just simple obedience to the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. Let me read it. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your Neighbors. What is coveting? Coveting is not necessarily bad. The word covet, the word desire, it's a neutral term. In other words, you could covet something's good and you could covet something bad. The term itself is not bad. It's where your desire goes. You could have a good coveting. I covet my wife's love. She covets my love. That's a good coveting. I covet the presence of God. I covet His glory. 
you can desire good things. You can desire to be in God's presence, desire to be in His Word. Those are good things to covet. The Tenth Commandment is referring to desiring stuff that's outside the will of God for your life. It's clear by the examples that it gives us here. You know, your neighbor's spouse, it's off limits. She's, she or he's off limits. Um, your neighbor's stuff, his animals, his house, those we've already dealt with in the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. There's a right to private property. He has a right to possess what God's given him. You don't have a right to that. You shouldn't be stealing it from him. You shouldn't be desiring it to take it from him. Now, if he wants to sell it to you, that's one thing. But you don't have the right to even desire to take it as your own. That's what the 10th commandment is all about. Forbidding what is contrary to God's uh, commands. Now... The 10th commandment deals with the heart. It deals with desire. No thoughts for what's contrary to God's commands are appropriate. No, no, no coveting, no desires. Um, somebody said to me yesterday that, uh, man, if, uh, what, what are you preaching on? The 10th commandment. Well, all 9th commandments I've broken and, you know, I'm, I'm dead in the water. I said, well, let me just say this. If there's somebody in the room who kept the first nine you're breaking this one, okay? This one takes all the commandments to a different level. This one takes the commandments to the heart. All of the other things is now included in this 10th commandment. So let's just take a few, like um, uh, the do nots. Do not murder. Do not uh, commit adultery. Do not steal. Steal, six, seventh, eighth. As you think about those commands... Um, do not murder. I might not physically murder you, but I want your downfall. I want your demise. See, I'm coveting you to go down. That's breaking the sixth commandment through the tenth commandment by wanting it in the heart. Even if I don't create the physical action, God says, don't covet it. Don't covet that person's destruction. That's murder. Or adultery. I, I, I'm not going to have an affair with your wife. But I kind of, well, I'd like to. I'd want to. She did that's coveting. It's coming from the heart. And though you didn't physically commit the act, you've spiritually committed it in your heart. And that's where coveting is. Stealing. I... I'm not going to show up at your house when you're on vacation and take something. But I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to have what you have. I'd like to get what you've got. Um, man, if there's some way I, could, I could, could get it, that would be nice. That's coveting. We've got to examine and explore our own hearts. Are we content with what God has given us? Or do we want the things God's given us? others because he hasn't made us all the same we weren't born to the same parents same family same house same location god's created rich diversity on this planet and he wants us all to learn to be content with where he has stationed us and where he has given us things now 
I was surprised when I found this. Uh, first, look at with me at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6. This list of people who uh, don't go to heaven. I was kind of, you know, most of the people on the list, you say, oh yeah, I get that. This takes coveting to a different level too when you, when you see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's the broad picture. Everybody in this list he's about to give is unrighteous and not bound for heaven. And then he gives a list. Don't be deceived. It's like, you might not put everybody on this list. Don't be deceived. They're on the list. And then he gives it. Neither the sexual, sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. There's the word. Same word for covet. And if you still have New American Standard translation, it says, nor the covetous. There's the word. Um, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you. In other words, this should be in the past tense if you're a believer. You could have been in this lifestyle, but Christ comes in and marvelously saves us and transforms us. And the old has passed away. And behold, all things are new in Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. But if we're still in this pattern, then the transformation of Christ has not taken place. So if, if we're practicing covetousness, God says we're putting ourselves in that category of those who do not inherit eternal life. Christ transforms those. Everyone who loves Christ loves his commands. And we begin to follow them and it transforms us. Um, so covetousness is a, just saying, showing you that verse just to so you see, it's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous sin. It's not something you say, well, yeah, I got that one too, and you just flip it off. It's a serious sin. It's a lifestyle we hate. It's a lifestyle we want to turn away from and never be associated with. Not only is it a dangerous sin, it's, a, it's what I would call a mother sin. By mother sin, I mean it gives birth to so many other sins. I'll give you an example of that. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, 10 says, you're, you're familiar with the verse, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So for the love of money, for the coveting of money, it says it creates all sorts of evil things that kind of coveting that kind of craving even leads people away from christ away from church away from the faith it's a mother sin so it's a big sin we want to uh, destroy coveting from our hearts and from our lives how do we do that let, let, let's first of all just kind of think well where does it creep up okay what when does coveting occur. If I, could, if I could learn when it's about to happen, 
I can, I can cut it off at the head, and that's, that's our goal. So I've given you four categories here of when covetousness occurs. First of all, when our meditation is really on the world, over the world, instead of in the Word. Uh, look at uh, Psalm chapter 1. Uh, very practical illustration here of two categories, really, of people, the Christian and the non-Christian. Psalm 1. And when we think of coveting, a lot of times we're thinking, you know, the only reason I want is because I don't have. I wish I had more. wish I had something else. wish I had prosperity. Psalm 1 talks about the prosperity. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, nor stands in the ways of sinner, uh, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. In the next part of the psalm, the wicked are not like that at all. The wicked are like chaff, and they're burned, destroyed. But the prosperous person, the person who really does end up after all with all that he needs, is the person, it says, who doesn't spend his time sitting, standing, walking in the world, in the non-Christian's values, thought patterns. He is the one who is meditating. So think about thinking. What, what are the thoughts of your heart? Meditating day and night in the law of the Lord, delights in it, meditates day and night on God's law and His Word. What does God want me to do? I want the desires of my heart to be what God wants me to do. When that's what you wake up with, when that's what carries you through the day, when that's what you go to bed with, I want the desires of my heart to be what God wants for me. Then you're not going to struggle with covetousness. You're cutting it off right there. The problem is we're inundated with so much of the world's thoughts that we start thinking with the world and then sometimes following their thought processes instead of transforming them to what's consistent with the Word of God. So think about what you are meditating on. going to be an old story for a while, I think, but how long are you on your phone every day? You can, you can check your app, and it'll tell you how many hours you spent on it. How much time are you on the TV? How much time are you reading the news and the sports and entertainment stuff on the Internet? Evaluate where your meditation is, where your thoughts are. If you're more in the world than you are and controlled by it, then you are in the Word and controlled by it. You're going to be very prone to covetousness. You're going to start desiring things outside the will of God. Meditate on Christ's deliverance of us to the obedience of His Word, and you'll see covetousness start to die down. Number two, when we do the town instead of do the truth, uh, obviously... Um, I don't know if people still say this phrase. You know, we, we used to say when we were going out on a Friday night date or going to a new place and we wanted to explore, hey, what you doing tonight? We're going to do the town. We're going to do the town. 
And that means we're just going to kind of immerse ourselves into culture, see what culture had for us, and enjoy its pleasures. Look at uh, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2. Fifteen through seventeen says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the phrase there, love, is it's all about the heart again. It's 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 literally do not embrace the values of the world. That would be to love it. Don't embrace the world's values. Embrace God's values. Embrace what pleases God. I mean, I would say, let's go do the town. How many times have you ever heard anybody say, hey, let's just go do God's will tonight? Why wouldn't that be what's on our heart? Hey, let's just go obey our God. Let's go love Him. Let's go find ways to express our passions for our God. When you can get there, you're cutting covetousness off at the head. That you don't want to start wanting what's outside God's will. So you start with God's will. And then start embracing it as what you value more than anything else that's around you. Number three, um, when we're Busy with matters instead of what doesn't matter. And the example there, I, I, did I give you the verse? Yeah, Luke 10, verse 40 through 42. You know the story. That's the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha's just really busy trying to get food on the table and serve Jesus, his disciples, and other guests that have come to her house. Well, she lives with her sister Mary. And since it's their house, you know, why wouldn't they both be hosting this meal together? But Mary, she, you know, she's already had a hard day, so she decides she'd sit down at the feet of Jesus and listen. And Martha's hitting the roof. I want, I'd like to sit down and listen. But if I sit down and listen, who puts the food on the table? And she's really concerned with the busy work. And Jesus says, uh, Mary, hold on. Excuse me, Martha, hold on. Mary's really concerned with what matters. With ministering to me, her Savior, receiving from me, her Savior. And maybe we, you know, there's ways to do both, but your heart's all turned up because you're not thinking about what does God want in this scenario? Does God want Mary to get up off her seat and go help Martha? Well, he didn't say so. Does he, would he rather Martha just put down the spoon and the plate? Let's sit and talk a minute. Then maybe we could all do that together. We don't know how all of that would have played out. We just know Jesus is evaluating hearts. He's evaluating Mary's heart and Martha's heart. And he's evaluating our hearts. So I want us to just think about uh, when we're really busy, 
What really matters? What's going on in our heart? Are we really busy because Jesus has asked us to be really busy? Or is it our values of ourself, what we want people to think of us, instead of what the heart's desire for what God would think of us? Move on. Number four, when working for goods while only wishing for God. Working for goods. Uh, several illustrations in this passage. I'm just going to give one of them. Look at Matthew chapter 19, 21 and 22. There's a, there's a farmer here. There's a rich man here. Let's just, it's kind of same old, same old, uh, thinking about uh, what's going on. The rich, the, the rich man, beginning uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. Let's just skip down to verse 19. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I kept. I, you know, I, I've kept the commands. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. This is one of the greatest fears of the Christian church. That Christ would show up and ask us to sell everything we had. Right? And give it to the poor. Because we covet those things. We've worked hard for those things. We enjoy those things. Again, there's nothing wrong with possessing things. Jesus is not telling everybody that. He's evaluating hearts here. And this man's heart clearly was on his possessions. And he would rather work to have those things than he would want to work to follow Jesus. He has a problem with coveting. He's coveting his things, his goods, over the only true God. So evaluate what really matters. What would you... Would you be willing to let go of? What do you not want to let go of? And if God's not in that category, I got to have God before I have anything else, then there's a problem of covetousness that we have to address. Um, you know, there's so many people in this world today that's working two jobs, three jobs, working uh, early and late to acquire things. And they tell me, you know, I said, well, have you had uh, some time in the Word today? I just don't have time. Preacher, just don't have time. Well, have you uh, sat down and prayed with your spouse or your, your kids? I just don't have time. I, I'm at work when they're getting up, whatever. Okay. Well, what is it you covet? What is it that's really the desire of your heart? And you begin to evaluate, and it's easy for us to, to do that and say, well, it seems to be your goods, your lifestyle. Your desire is then at that point outside the will of God, not in the will of God. Your desire is not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's, it's somewhat apart from that. Well, can we cure that? Can we fix it? Four things I want to give you for a cure. The covetousness can be cured. Starts with a real trust in God's provisions. Trusting God's provisions. Look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 28. Matthew 6. Uh, 
Beginning at verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. How do we cure covetousness? First things first, big blocks in the jar before the little jars. Seek God first. Trust God to provide first. And then go work for other provisions. But trust God's way first. And God's illustrations is so plain. It's like you, you say you got to do it or you won't have clothes. Really? You say you got to do it or you won't have food. He says, really? Have you not looked at my creation and how I provide for it day after day, how I sustain it. And you who are made in my image think that that doesn't matter and I won't care for you. I won't somehow provide for you if you start with me first. You think somehow seeking God first is going to negate your provisions. And God is saying, not going to happen. Just not going to happen. Why do, where did that mentality come from? That if we somehow start our day, our time, our thoughts, our meditations with God, it's going to negate our provisions. We've got to kill that. The way to cure covetousness is to trust God as our provider first. We must find ways to start the day. Coveting sin is not just a, I mean, it's not just a bad attitude. It's sin. It's, it's denying our provider is God. Number two, redirecting our desires to the things of God. Redirecting our desires to the things of God. Um, I'm not going to look up something on this. Just Let me just give you a song. You, you were... Some of you old-timers would remember um, that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full Into His Wonderful Face, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And that's what I mean here. Redirect our desires, our thoughts. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at Him. His passion for you. His desire for you. When you look at how much He is willing to do for us, won't the things of this earth pale in comparison, grow strangely dim, and we'll want more and more of that kind of love. We don't have that kind of love somewhere else. Someone who will stand before us in the wrath of God and take it. Someone who will take our sins and wash them away. We don't find that with anybody else. We don't find another God 
who lives forever, who has power over the grave to give us a resurrection unto life for all eternity. When we look, when we direct our minds, our attention to Christ, we begin to see, I've got what I need in Christ. Christ is enough. Number three, realize the wealth we already have in the love of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. I'm always blown away by this passage. I love at times just thinking about it and meditating on it because it takes me places, um, you know, we really can't get to. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. It is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. God's declaration that you haven't seen it yet, you haven't heard of it yet, you haven't even imagined it yet. You know, remember that song, I can only imagine God sitting up there. No, you didn't. No, you can't. I've got stuff you can't imagine. I've prepared stuff you can't hear or see yet. It's beyond your capacity because I created you on this earth as finite creatures. But I'm an infinite God. So I have stuff beyond your finiteness and in between my infinity. You haven't seen or heard or even thought of any of that stuff. And I have it for you. For those of you I love, for those of you who love me, realize the wealth we're going to enter into and step through the threshold into heaven in Christ and just be blown away. And the declaration out of our mouth and heart and eyes is, didn't see that coming. Didn't hear that before. Never even imagine it. And God says, it's because I love you. Why were you coveting that trivial stuff on earth when I have so much more? How are we going to end up, folks? We're not going to end up in Christ as losers. We're not going to end up with nothing. What are we afraid of if we were to give it all up? We're not going to be depleted. Because God says, I prepared stuff. It's going to blow you away. You've never seen the wealth and riches that I intend to lavish upon you because of Christ. And then number... Well, you know this. Let me give you one other passage. It's just because it's raining today, okay? Look at Romans chapter 5. And I prayed for y'all this morning. I'm so proud of you being here. Some people wake up and they said, oh, it's raining. It's cold. I'm not going to church today. You didn't do that. You're out here. Yes. Awesome. Romans chapter 5, um, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. You ever rejoice in your sufferings? Some people wake up and say, I can't, I can't have fun today. It's cold and it's raining. A discontented person, a person constantly in coveting, never is thankful for a rainy day. 
Covetous people are not thankful for sufferings. Here he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope never puts us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When we get to a state of not coveting the better day and the better things of this world, we gain such a contentment and such a joy and we wake up and there's no bad day. God's blessing us always. I want us to see, just realize there's blessing even in the pain, even in the suffering. Even though we walk through a valley of a shadow of death, God is with us. His rod and His staff, He comforts us. He's preparing a table before us. God is so good to His people. We need not covet. And then number four, work at learning contentment. Um, you know the Philippians 4 passage where Christ, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before, just before he says that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he says, I've learned Learn. It didn't just wasn't just natural for me. I had to learn how to live with a lot of stuff when the kings brought me into their palaces. I had to learn to live with that. And then when they threw me off the boat, stripped me naked, stoned me, whatever, he said, I had to learn how to live with nothing. And Paul says, I learned both both scenarios, but it was a learning to be content. It didn't come natural. It's not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is always a little bit more. I'll be content if, if God just gives me a little bit more. Let me show you the real secret. Paul says he learned it. This is where I think it's found. Look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Beginning at verse 3. It's where the covetousness is described. The psalmist says, Psalm 73, verse 3, says, I was envious, there's ours coveting, the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Here the psalmist is describing, my condition is I'm a coveter. I want what the non-Christian has. And the non-Christian, he says, I'm specifically talking about are the ones who are eating and drinking. They're fat. They're sleek. They've got enough servants and things and fortresses that they're just never in trouble. They're never stricken down like so many people I see and like me. He said, that's who I am. Cure. Jump over to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, you might want to circle that word, this is where it changes. Verse 17, until I went to church, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. See, this is one of the few places on earth you come to and people talk about hell, and people talk about he heaven, and people talk really about dying. We understand the shortness of life. And the psalmist says, 
it really wearied me. It bothered me seeing other people have so much more and have a life that's so much better than mine until I went to church. And then at church is where I saw the end of the story. That there's a literal heaven, there's a little hell, there's a death, and we don't take any of this stuff with us. It's only there that life begins eternal. Where eyes not seen and ears not heard. And we, we haven't even imagined what's prepared for the believer. When I saw that that's where the story really begins. And not ends. But I saw that for this person I'm coveting. That's where the story gets worse and worse and worse for them. He says that was the cure. I would be foolish. To covet and envy the person who's going to hell. That makes absolutely no sense. Why am I doing that? He says, that's the end. Verse 18. Truly you set them. He says, they're in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. They could hit a mat truck today. Their life's over. In misery forever. They're in such a slippery place. Verse 20, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. How would you like to be despised by God as worthless as wind, a ghost? When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I uh, was brutish and ignorant. Man, that was stupid, thinking I should be like them. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will receive me into glory. And that's why he says this famous statement. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See his desires have been cured. When I look at the end. When I look at heaven and hell. My desire is heaven. My desire is the ruler of heaven. My desire is Christ. Whom have I there? Christ. Why would I want to be here going to hell when Christ is my all and all? He says, I have no desire beside Christ. So if you really struggle with curing covetousness, you really have to evaluate your passion for Christ and seeing Christ as your all in all. The cure is not a 12-step program. The cure is Christ. Time with Christ. Time with His words. Um, get to church. Get to worship. Because that's where the body of Christ encourages and builds us and strengthens us constantly to see Christ. Now, back to the Ten Commandments. It's interesting to me that the Tenth Commandment leads us right back to the first. And it's circular. It's just constant. Once you get into the commands of God, you can't get out of them. You start the first command, love God. Have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. You get to the Tenth Commandment. Are you loving other stuff? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. It just sends you back. And it sends you back to all the commands to be passionate for what God is passionate for. To have his heart. Um, God's made it fairly simple for us. No other gods. Love him. Quit desiring other things. It's just destroying 
your life, making the surveys in the like the world that half of Christians also don't think you're going to have enough for what you need. That's a sad state. It's a sad testimony about our God. Who can testify that God's truly let you down? That God's truly abandoned you after he's washed you in his blood? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you for directing us to you, to what's real, what matters, what is ahead, what is behind. Father, in you is light. There's no darkness at all. We can see clearly now. Obstacles are removed when our hearts are cleansed from our evil, covetous desires. We stand before you as sinners, needing cleansing. We ask that you would cleanse us from all sin. You would remove all unrighteousness and fill us with the joy of a Savior who always provides and protects. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.